Faith Ward was the original, I guess, person that I went to for the podcast, I think, right? A couple years ago? Yes. I was was looking... You had an assignment? I had an assignment for school and I came to you because you, I think I talked to someone and they were like, Faith Ward is the person to ask about podcasts. Mm -hmm. So, um... So tell me a little bit about your like podcast background and how you kind of because the, the middle school has a room designed for podcasting, right? Because that's where I recorded that one episode for mm-hmm. school. It was my office. It was your office. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we have a, basically a mobile podcasting station and we do. We have a podcast club and it's open to sixth, seventh and eighth graders. And they come up, they had to fill out a full blown um, proposal to tell us what they wanted to talk about and what they want to make their show about. So the majority of them are related to sports. Mm-hmm. Um, we had uh, an eighth grade group that wants to do baseball, talks about baseball. Like some guys talk about football, but we have a sixth grade group and they do movie reviews. Oh, I like that. Uh, yeah. We have a sixth grader who's really just doing social, emotional um, wellness mm. and, you know, what what the pandemic has been like for students and kind of talking about that. Um, we have some students who just like they're still ideating and they like to sit down and talk and just, you know, kind of get some stuff out um, for them to record and listen to. And then um, I will say that we have used the NPR student podcast challenge as a focal point for anyone who maybe didn't have something that they were passionate about that they wanted to do a couple of segments on. And you had some uh, software, right, that you were using that allowed you to record and upload very easily because I don't really do any of what Chesray does. Like he, he does all of the recording. I don't even really know what software he uses, but there was some very easy to use technology that you used in there. I don't think we, I wanna, I think we used, um, well, we're using Soundtrap now, which the- That might've been it. With the um, the performing arts group used last year as a vehicle to have multiple people sort of join in, zoom in and make a recording. Mm-hmm. So it was really meant, or I think it was developed for the, for the arts, mm-hmm. um, but it can be used for podcasting too. So that's what we have the boys use to edit and record on. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, is it still pretty popular in middle school? Yes. Yeah. They, yes. I, you know, I worked with, um, I've always worked in single gender schools and I have three daughters and I am here to tell you that boys like to talk. Um, mm. it, 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 it's really something that I think there's an inherent bias about or an, an idea that boys don't talk, but they do. They like the podcasting. <laughs> they do. I think trickier has been, what do they listen to? Um, so some of them listen to podcasts, again, about sports, about media. Um, but I had one student talk to me about his mother suggesting that he listen to Serial, um, which you know was a, a series that came out many years ago about an unsolved murder in, yeah. in Baltimore. And oh, that was in Baltimore. It was. Mm. It was in Baltimore City. Um, so I, I think that's been trickier is figuring out like what they like because the podcast world is so big. Yeah. Um, just figuring out what their niche is and what they want to listen to. Do you listen to many podcasts on your own? Um, I haven't lately. You know, I, no. I digest and consume a lot of media. Um, one of my friends was actually just giving me a, a tip on one for middle schoolers and it's like a 
a middle school uh, romance podcast. Mm. Yes, fiction romance. Interesting. Yes. Um, <laughs> Uh, I I do you know I tend to listen to like This American Life you know and 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 you know just see like what they're up to and listen to things it's a it, and certainly people uh, you probably get this a lot too they listen to a story and then they tag you and they are like hey I just heard this amazing story have mm-hmm. you heard that you know whether it's about an artist that um, you know didn't make money from a book that they published or um you know maybe they're experiencing some type of like political blowback from something that they published too two people have kind of come to me recently on that hmm. do you um so i talked to a lot of the librarians in the upper school about audiobooks because mm-hmm. some of them like the audiobooks in there and we just talked about some of the books that are coming in and the reviews mm-hmm. um do you like audio do you listen to audiobooks ever or you do you like reading the the true version of the book. The print. I I do a little bit of both, right? I think um, listening to a book really depends on what type of the genre it is, whether an audio is going to work for me. Um, I am going to talk about one book since since you actually just brought this up. Why don't we start? Why don't we talk about? The, we usually save the books to the la- to the end, but I don't know why we do that. So why don't we start out with with the book, Rex? So on January twenty fourth, the American Library Association gives out their awards for media for the year, for children, for for young adults and children. And uh, it's always a really interesting time because as a librarian, you're kind of doing one of two things. You're saying like, oh, okay, what was the winner? I wanna be knowledgeable about that. What was the Caldecott? What was the Newberry? But you're also checking to see in your collection, did I collect this book at some point during the 2021, you know, academic year, mm-hmm. and do I own it? Because I knew that it was a good book, that it had a lot of buzz around it. So, did you predict the the medal? Exactly. There's basically a, there's a there's a lot of predicting going on, and I we were really pleased. We owned the majority of the books that were awarded, that were awarded or came away from the event being distinguished, and. One of them that I read in print was this book, Crossing the Line, by Kareem Rosser. Have you heard about um, about this book? No. no? Okay, Can so, I see the mm-hmm. cover? It has a fantastic cover. Um, so, so this book is about uh, a young young brothers growing up in Philly, and they um, they live near an old barn and there is a woman who runs a program out of that barn that horse stable called work to ride and she has any kid that kind of comes into the program work taking care of the horses in exchange for riding lessons and so kareem and his brothers wind up learning how to play polo and they go on to be uh, the first all black polo teams to win college championships in the United States. Mm. So um, this is a book that I read in the fall and I really loved, Big Media Blitz. Kareem was on NPR, on the Today Show. Um, Yes. And he does have some type of deal with um, Ralph Lauren and is the face of of the polo brand. But I I re-listened to it over uh, the weekend because we bought it on audio as an offering for our students. Our students really like audiobooks. It is uh, routinely one of the most checked out type of books on our OverDrive platform. 
So the platform that kids get eBooks from. Gotcha. So we have eBooks that they can download and actually look at, but then they also have a lot that they can listen to. And they can just go on their computers and do that on their own. They don't have to come to you at all and they just, okay. They do. Yeah. And they can listen to things on their phone, you know, and that's the really nice part about an audiobook is I can listen to it, put it down. And then pick it up maybe on my iPad at home and it'll know exactly where I stopped and it'll just start again. So how was the experience of reading this for the first time versus listening to it, which was different, obviously, but mm -hmm. which did you like better? Did you like the both versions of the book the same? I really like listening to it. You like listening more? I, I did because the actors uh, that they have reading the books really put the right emphasis on everything. And I think they really crystallized dialogue for the listener. Um, so different voices throughout? Not necessarily. There are books that have an ensemble cast in the audio version. Um, a good example of that is Lincoln and the Bardo. I was going to say, yeah. Uh, yeah. That, did, that, did you listen? I did not, but I, I, I read that book. I liked it, but I heard from people that the audio version is better because of the different voices and it makes it easier to understand who's speaking. Uh, I think what we've hit upon here is, and it was just what I would tell you in my professional uh, life, is that there are times where listening to it is going to be better than reading it. Mm. Um, ta Coates, uh, Between the World and Me, is another, you know, the listen will never compare to reading it. Much know, better, you would say. Absolutely. Really? All right. So that was Absolutely. our last book recommendation the other day on Friday on the podcast. Yeah. Was it? So maybe um, that should have been an audio version recommendation. I, I was. Listen <laughs> I listened to it actually driving out to the Eastern Shore to go to a um, a conference, and I remember this with such distinction. I almost drove off the road um, because really? of some of the powerful moments in that audio book. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, Your next book. So. For students, you would recommend, so like I'm, so I'm teaching English and I have students ask me sometimes, can I listen to the book rather than read the book? What would you, what would you say in that position? Do you say that's okay? Is that taking away from the experience of print reading? Mm -hmm. Or I, I sometimes say you can listen as you read because I feel like that's a, I call it a 4D experience as you've got both going on at the same time. And it's maybe even more powerful for you. I mm -hmm. used to do that in college with Shakespeare, have uh, have the audio going while I was reading it. It just made it a little bit easier to understand. But mm -hmm. I don't know. I never I go back and forth on it. Do you ask your students what type of learners they are? You know, I think it's all about self-advocacy. You know, mm -hmm. there are a lot of students that I listen to. Or let's say we go into a classroom and kind of observe the teaching that's going on. And if it's all teacher-driven, teacher-talking, I think, as an instructor, I think, what about the kid who just does not process that way? Like, how are they losing out on this experience? Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, your idea of having them both read and listen is a, is a great one. I think there's a time and place for each. And I, and I think regardless, I think everyone should try and work up some muscle and endurance to be able to do all platforms, right? Like reading an ebook. So you know you can change the font and you can, you know, make that page size really big. Like True. A lot of lot of you, you have to be very agile, there, I think, when it comes to your consumption. There are pros to each of those different versions. Um 
But I do, I, I will say about the audio version, I do like the different voices, but I feel like listening to an audio version, I, I feel like I can multitask a little bit more and that's never really, you're never really listening if you're doing something else, you know? Mm -hmm. Like I feel like you, if, if you're gonna do the audiobook, you actually have to sit down and just listen, which is, which is hard mm -hmm. to do. So can I ask you a question? Can you effectively listen to a book while you're running? Like is, is I that can't personally, but I'm sure some people can. I, 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 I don't. I want to listen to music while I'm running. To be honest, okay. Like I don't really like listening to, like a steady voice while I'm running. I like, mm -hmm. and I don't really even like music that much these days. I just kind of like silence, which is a little psycho, but really, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I just kind of stopped wearing my headphones, mm -hmm. and I've just liked it more. It's a little bit more peaceful, mm -hmm. but. Different, different strokes for different folks, I guess. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I do think you know it's it's just a way to to practice because there are going to be there's going to be some instance in your academic life or in your personal life where you're going to have to listen to something and your comprehension of it is going to be key to you making a decision or you know. That's very true. You know, hmm. the, it's interesting when you talk uh, when your students ask you about what they can listen to. Do they have a mindset about what is legitimate literature, you know, or, or a le legitimate reading experience? You know, do they come to you with a notion of like one's better than the other? I don't think so. I think it usually happened and it probably happened for the first time this year with the Scarlet Letter because the Scarlet Letter is so challenging. So I had students like Mr. Scott, I'm like having real trouble getting through the language here and getting through, mm -hmm. getting through this book. And I'm like, try on the next chapter listening to the, because on YouTube you have like all the audio versions or what was the platform that, that we have? Uh, Sora. Sora, yeah. Sora, like, like you can go on Sora and listen Audible. to it. Audible. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that just makes it a little bit easier to get through it. Mm -hmm. um, so I just have them experiment with that kind of mm -hmm. stuff because I've been there, I've done that before. Shakespeare was hard to sit down and you know read. So I really liked having the audio at the same time. I don't know, just try it out. But I don't, I don't know if they have an idea of what, like when you say, do they, act, do they ask me based on their knowledge of what type of learner they are? I don't know if everyone really has a sense of, I feel like when you ask students, what, what kind of learner are you? The, the go-to response is visual, visual learner, which like everyone is kind of a visual learner, right? Like you've got to see something to excite you mm -hmm. or it's, if you're just looking at the wall, I don't know. Mm -hmm then maybe more definitively they can answer and say, visual, I, I can't take in anything through my ears. You know, the ears are just like the one way where I'm either written or I need to, you know, read it or I need to see the picture. But yeah. It's a good question to pose. Um, I'm probably know. wrong. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, you You would know way more than I would, but I just feel like when I was in high school, I didn't really know what type of learner I was. Mm -hmm. I would have said visual because I am excited more when there's something in front of me to look mm -hmm. at. But mm -hmm. I feel like that's the case for a lot of people. Um, what are the different types of learning? Visual, mm -hmm. auditory. Okay. Um, I, I do think writing has something to do with it. You know, um, I'm also someone who once a doctor posed to me, like, how do you how do you understand information? Because they were telling me something. 
And I said, I need to read it. In order for me to really know it, I need to read it. I need to see those words and digest them that way. So is that visual? Yes, but I think it's a different plane of visual, Mm -hmm. right? Like I didn't need to see an image. I needed to read the words. Hmm. Yeah, I would say I'm a a visual learner, but I don't know. Mm -hmm. I'm doing a podcast, so I'm learning through listening to you too which mm-hmm. if you haven't had experience doing that, would you say you're an auditory learner? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It, it I don't think anyone been... wants to sit in a room and just hear someone talk if they're not interested in the subject. Well, I think you're hitting upon something, right? Like I, I do listen to 99% Invisible and like the hidden brain. And to me, the stories or the podcasts that stick with me are the ones that are more told like a story as opposed to the data-driven ones, uh, you know? So I, I think on um, The Hidden Brain, there was this podcast about um, a young boy in Southern California who decided that he was going to break the Guinness Book World Record for staying awake the longest a human had ever stayed awake. Wow. And that story, that podcast has stayed with me in a way that I think very few texts that I've ever read have resonated. So I think it depends on the content, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, I I do want to say to you that Crossing the Line book is an Alex Award winner. And the Alex Award, uh, the American Library Association gives out 10 of them, 10 nods to adult books, written for an adult audience, but are good for teens. So um, that might be a book that you pass on to the students that you teach. So is it um, YA or is it? No, it, it, it was an adult book and it was meant for an adult audience. Uh, it's, a, it's a memoir. Um, he actually attended Valley Forge for high school. Um, oh. Oh, yeah. uh, Valley Forge. Military. Oh, military. Wow. wow. I play tennis there. I'm from from that area. I I, I knew that you were from the Philadelphia area, but I thought it was more like in the, um, you know, like, I don't know. Where where is Valley Forge? Oh, it must be in Valley Forge. It's probably 20 minutes outside of Philadelphia, I would say. Um, It's five minutes from Valley Forge National Park. Um, But it's a beautiful campus. I mean, Valley Forge Military School is like very, very beautiful. Um, but wow, I did not know that. Yeah, so I think part of the reason he wound up going there was because they had they had horses. Mm-hmm. They had an equestrian program where he could continue uh, riding and playing polo. Um, you know, and so there's a lot about this book that I think is really interesting for our community because I was talking to my middle schoolers about it and I was like, has anyone seen a polo match, you know, ever? Um, yeah. <laughs> And uh, we had a discussion about that because there are area schools that have equestrian programs. Um, and I, I said, well, you know, what's a polo game like? You know, is it genteel? And, and uh, we got to the root of the fact that it's not that, you know, on a horse, you're going 30 miles an hour. It's like lacrosse on motorcycles. Yeah, it's dangerous for sure. It is very dangerous, um, but it's thrilling. And baked into the sport is the fact that it's you know one of privilege and um, great great amounts of financial support mm-hmm. have to be backing you in order to play. So there 
work and their role moving into that sport is significant. Yeah, that's a that's a brilliant idea that mm-hmm. that trade off. And I think about that with lacrosse sometimes too, because mm-hmm. lacrosse is very white sport. Mm-hmm. And if you're looking to add some racial diversity in the sport of lacrosse, mm-hmm. um, I, th- I think it's like a lot of sports like ice hockey, I think you could say the same thing for and I think a lot of it is the financial barrier to like gain access to that sport. The equipment is expensive and you know, same with with polo. Yes, polo horses are not like, ones come by easily. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> but that's a brilliant idea and it sounds like a like a really interesting book. Mm-hmm. Have um, several students read this or listened to it? Um, have you talked to the students about it yet? I've, yes. So we've been talking about it since the 24th um, because we had we talked to them about the Alex Award. Um, I, I have had students in my seventh and eighth grade, like they read uh, Tara Westover's Educated. You know, there are, there are a lot of popular adult books hmm. that a seventh or eighth grader may or may not be curious about and want to read. So they were highly interested in this book, and we do have it on Sora as the online, uh, as the online book. Um, but really, I've been been telling my colleagues about it. You know, I always like to tell them about a book. And what is Kareem uh, doing now after I guess having this experience? Is he still involved in in polo? He is in finance. Uh, he wound up going to a Colorado school um, where he won that national championship. And he, yes, works in finance, but he's part, he's a trustee for um, Work to Ride. So he's still very involved in the program that he and his brothers were part of in Philly. And That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. It's just a great, it's not an easy read. Yeah. They, they yeah. It had, looks, I mean, they, I would have had, said it was an adult book from just looking at it, but. They they have a lot of challenges, but uh, but it, in terms of tenacity and perseverance, it doesn't get better than that. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Alex um, Award. So can I talk to you about another book? Yeah, yeah. You've got a few there. I do. So I'm <laughs> I'm a fan of picture books, and I think that's a shout out to my ten years working in a lower school. Um, but picture books are really um, effective tools in the classroom, and I, I really enjoyed this book, which did not win any awards for the ALA. We'll be clear about that. But it is the the biography of Edwin Hubble. Um, the Hubble Telescope. Yes. Yeah, so he, uh, what I found really interesting about this book was his fascination with the stars from a very young age. And he um, was discouraged, basically, by his father to study astronomy. Um, he went to graduate the University of Chicago, and then he wound up going to Oxford and studied law. Came back to the States, and his father's like, you're going to be a teacher, and you're going to coach basketball. And then after his father passed, he went back to the University of Chicago, and he started studying astronomy. So wow. I, I think it's a really interesting story from the perspective that um, in life, you can get second chances. Um, in life, you can be really passionate about something from a very young age. Um, I think it's also proof positive that you know he's he made such a contribution to our knowledge of the universe, um, and we're still we're still um, benefiting from that today. Young children like books like that, and I think older children like them too because. 
they're very simple, right? There, there's not a lot of window dressing in there. Mm-hmm. You, you learn the facts, you kind of get in and you get out. And for our middle school students, I think that's a great seed to plant in them. And then they can go and they can look at a more comprehensive biography or they can read more about astronomy and discover other astronomers. But I really enjoyed that. I don't part. know if I would predict that, that um, middle schools would be interested in like biographical or, or, or lower schools would be interested in biographical. I feel like more fiction would be more fiction based uh, children's book would be more appealing, but that's interesting. Hmm. I don't know if that'd be my first guess. So in general, and we're using broad strokes here, um, our single gender community reads more nonfiction yeah. biography fitting into that than other single gender schools. I think that's true, yeah. <laughs> and that happens at a very young age. Um, working with the lower schoolers, the boys just, there are some students who come to the library and they go right to the section on rocks and that's where they go every week and they take home their books about rocks. Mm. Um, so in, in middle school, I think we see a shift actually in that because they're doing so much nonfiction work in their academic career that or in their academic lives that when they come to the library they really want a work of fiction because they want to escape they want that thing that takes their mind off of yeah their work that makes sense are you seeing um with the younger uh students are you seeing uh, a decrease in interest in in reading because of the phones and the games and the social media are you seeing that like happen um like to an intense degree right now or is it kind of slowly going that way over the years or like what's it like now with the phones because i i coach the middle school squash and they love their phones obviously it's just just the times and i'm wondering if they're going in the library and checking out books as much this is a hard question a to answer and it really is close to my heart Mm -hmm. right um we have a really successful library program. And and part of that is because I talk to the boys all the time. I, I, I really insert myself into things that they're doing and I make sure that we have books about things that they care about. Um, in the pandemic, I will say, in the height of the pandemic, and we can see this when we benchmark outside of school, right? Independent bookstores have done really well over the past two years because people are reading more, right? Yeah, they, that's true. Yeah. So, so that's been good. There have definitely been parents who've said, I want my son off the iPad. He needs to have a book mm-hmm. at night to read, right? I want him to take a break from technology. But there is a lot of there's a lot of data out there that says our minds have very quickly been rewired by all of the digital reading that we do and that reading a book in print is actually a little bit more difficult than it used to be because uh, our cognitive strategies for attacking words has really changed. Um, And if you think about the majority of the reading that you do every day, you're looking at websites and you're kind of like scanning and skimming and you probably finish 60% of an article that you start in the New York Times and then you're out. Which is a skill too, right? Uh, Like like I feel like if you're in business or you're working a career, you have to scan like digital websites all the time and take in what you need. But a different type of skill. Mm-hmm. I I would absolutely concur. But has it changed your endurance? 
we're reading something that really requires you to dig in and and deconstruct and take active notes on. Yeah, it it has. And and it's a, a huge challenge to our students to be able to do both really well. And that's really what they do need to know how to do well in order to succeed in an academic environment. Yeah, and you can't really you can't really blame them. It's just just the world. Mm-hmm. I also think that we're not necessarily doing a lot of direct instruction on it, right? So in my technology class, I actually had a, a little lesson with my students about doing lateral reading. So long ago, uh, in the library research world, when when students stumbled upon a website that they were going to use and a paper that they were writing, we'd say, like, drill down, you know, find out everything you can to, to verify that this is an authoritative source. Well, Stanford did a big study with students and professors and professional researchers, and what they found was the best way for you to figure out whether or not a website is authoritative is to start doing research on whatever they're talking about on that site, or you do research about them. Hmm. meaning the author or the organization that the website is supported by. And and the students really thought of that as like a eureka moment. They were like, oh, like you don't want me to, you know, click on the about and where these people live. And no, I was like, I want you to get out of there and I just want you to open up another tab and I want you to start like figuring out, is this true? Oh, wow. So lateral reading and that's to help them ascertain the validity of the websites that they're reading. Yeah, that's very important. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Well, um, I like this idea, the boy whose head was filled with stars, Edward Hubble. Um, and I like the path he took in his life. It's very similar to, uh, I don't know if you've seen the Steve Jobs commencement speech, but um, I teach mm-hmm. a character and leadership class for seniors. Mm-hmm. And I showed them that speech, and I had only seen it recently too, but it's his commencement speech, maybe 2005 at Stanford. Mm -hmm. And he talks about how, I mean, he had so many like bizarre pathways to get where he got in his life. Um, He went to Reed College, I believe, dropped out, didn't really know what he wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's one little anecdote that that he talks about in his speech, and it was the fact that he randomly took a calligraphy class when he was at Reed College, like his okay. freshman year when you're, you know, you're choosing the classes and you need one filler class. He took a calligraphy class. And when he started Apple and he started these different tech companies, Pixar, the, one of the like main selling points of, of Apple, other than like the processing speed and, you know, the all the digital improvements mm-hmm. on that computer was like the, the fonts and the colors of the Mac. And the fonts were like directly from his calligraphy class that he took randomly at Reed College. So it's kind of a similar idea here. It's like this, you know, Hubble was doing this and he was going to be a teacher and, but he really had that passion and just the different directions you can go. Yeah. Um, that made me think of that, which I always thought was very cool. I'll have speech. to look up that speech. Oh yeah. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. It's very good. Um, I, I was, we just did this book in the middle school as a book club. And we did this with our sixth grade. So it's a new book by Jason Reynolds. And I think we can just pause and talk about, you know, Jason Reynolds being, you know, such a uh, driving force in having kids read. You know, he is the ambassador for children's literature in the United States. And 
I, I think there's no other author writing so honestly for students, you know, for middle grade age kids. Um, he was interviewed in the New York Times book review this weekend, and he was asked, you know, living or dead, who would you invite, you know, to your literary dinner party? <laughs> uh, which I, I love that question. And so he said, uh, Tony Morrison, James Baldwin, Kesey Lehman, and Jessamine Ward. And he would make dinner for them and give them wine. And then he would just like back out and watch and see like what ensued. Um, so I love that answer. But this book is about Portico Reeves, great name for a protagonist, if you ask me, um, who lives in an apartment building in New York City. And his parents are going through a breakup. They're going to uh, remain in the apartment, but they're going to have two separate uh, two separate apartments. And, and so he has this superhero approach basically to getting through the day to conquer the things he's navigating in his personal life, the things he's navigating at school, and the overarching anxiety that kind of connects those two. So we had a great conversation about the book with the boys, which I really appreciated because the books should open up the doors to conversation. Mm -hmm. But what's really interesting about this book is that it's heavily illustrated and it's illustrated by a comic uh, or graphic novel uh, illustrator named Raul III. And we actually had Raul III, in addition to Jason Reynolds, come visit, um, come visit Gilman. Raul III has written this series called Low Riders in Space. Um, and so I think, you know, it's the combination that the two of them partnering with these great visuals yeah. right alongside dialogue and the narrative um, that the boys just were so absorbed into. And did you read this together? Did they read this on their own? How does... It's, it's really interesting. I, I know of no perfect way to do a, a book club. I would I would like kind of welcome your expertise, you know, teaching teaching <laughs> literature. Um, we had them read it on their own. Yeah. And then we got together and we had very specific, intentional questions and conversation starters and they ran with it. Uh, and then they were asking their own questions. But I think we could do that because it's pretty long. I mean, you couldn't really read it in one sitting. I mm -mm, feel like mm -mm. kind of have to take it home. It, the, it's pretty straightforward, and I think the illustrations kind of help move the narration along. Yeah, beautiful. Um, yeah, but we're we're going to uh, work with that book and have fifth grade um, sort of do a welcome to the middle school. And I, I think with the fifth grade, we actually will read it in different parts and talk about it. You know, we'll kind of split it into thirds and talk about it with them that way. But, you know, Jason Reynolds just... Talk about someone who writes all over, you know, the map. He, um, there's nothing he can't do successfully. How many um, students are in this book club or this library club that you guys have in middle school? Um, we had we had about six kids join us for reading this, um, and that was sort of an inaugural uh, pitch with sixth grade. Um, we were always looking, you know, to to bump up and get more kids reading, but I think any win that we have like anyone who comes like that's yeah. a win for us you know yeah. we've been um i've been talking to the librarians in the upper school about doing the library club and they are, are making that happen which is pretty mm -hmm. awesome and there are some pretty devoted students in the upper school who are into it um but we read zadie smith's intimations 
Have you read that? I have not. Oh, I, I know it was on your list. Tell me how the club was. What did you talk about? So I had randomly picked that up kind of in one of the free libraries walking around my neighborhood. Um, but I've, I've always really liked Zadie Smith. Mm -hmm. Just kind of liked her style of writing, humorous, mm -hmm. but also feels timely. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very short. I mean, you could read it in an hour okay. or two, um, probably an hour. And I thought it'd be interesting to have a little book club and talk about just the events of the pandemic. And I feel like students mm -hmm. probably have all these thoughts about what's been going on or you know, they maybe talk to their friends and their families, but outside of that, it, it's interesting to hear how other people's experience with this whole thing has been. And there mm -hmm. aren't too many outlets for that. So I think, I guess, similar to your point, we kind of use that as like a gateway to talk about life during the pandemic, I guess. Um, Cause she has all these little vignettes of like her experience when lockdown started yeah. and yeah. Okay. Um, so I guess that's what it was. And we had a few teachers out and, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I like the idea of a book club because, um, you know, you talk about it in English class, but it's, it always feels like, I feel like as a student, it always feels like it's mandated or, you know, you have to read this and there's going to be a grade attached, but mm -hmm. if it's just meeting after school for, you know, 25 minutes or however long it goes and it's, free flowing, no grades, just bring your thoughts, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but I like the idea of people choosing, maybe teachers or maybe students choosing a few things and putting it together into a little packet. So it's mm. not a large book mm -hmm. that you have to get through, but it's just a few things that people like. Um, I don't know if that if you guys could do that in the middle school or not, but I was thinking like short stories, poems, that kind of thing. Absolutely. Um one book that I really liked uh, that I read during, well, actually prior to the pandemic was Ross Gay's um, Book of Delights. Yeah, yeah. And I think something short, something that, you know, one chapter or one day, his story might resonate with you, you know. Yeah, it, it's a lot harder to get through, you know, white noise or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like a like two-page story, that's it, mm -hmm. you know. The, the idea around it, for me, the win around it is getting together. Like yeah. we were a group and everyone had a voice. And um, we did say to them, we did say to the group, why don't you go ahead and pick the next book? Because I like it being student driven rather than top down. Yeah, you for know? sure. Um, so Faith, tell me a little bit about how you uh, got into like your profession just to begin with and where that fascination began for you. Um, when I was in college, I spent a lot of time in the library. Did you? I did. I did as well. I think that's kind of where it starts. <laughs> there are a lot of people who go to college and they still talk to me about having, you know, a very clear memory of going to this section of the lab. This floor was, you know, where I studied or where I would go before exams. Um, and it was upon my graduation that uh, I was an art history major that the art history librarian said to me, you should really go into librarianship. And so I applied to um, Wisconsin. Madison has a very good library program. And um, I also applied to Catholic University in Washington. And I wound up going to uh, Washington because of the opportunity to work in a variety of libraries. Like it is, if you are a librarian in Washington, D.C., you have your pick of places where you can uh, work, whether that's the Library of Congress, 
a multitude of university libraries, you know, school systems, and um, there's also a lot of law librarianship in DC. So you weren't really leaning towards that before those librarians said something to you senior year. Oh. No. You're kind of interested in the art in the art history. Mm-hmm. And in going to school, I thought maybe I would focus on archives or or working in a special library, working in a special collection. Um, the summer before I uh, started graduate school, I actually worked at the Cooper Hewitt Museum in New York City. It's a Smithsonian, um, but it's their design museum, and they have a really unique collection of pop-up books. Some of the original pop-ups that came from Germany by a paper engineer called uh, Megger, uh Lothar Megendorfer, that was his name. Mm. So um, I worked extensively with those books and I thought, you know, maybe I can kind of tie in like books and art. Uh, but, but ultimately I just sort of found that librarianship is a portable profession. You can take it into a school, you can work in a public library, you can work in the, you know, McKinsey and you can work in consulting and you can do research on, on their side, so. So, yeah. When you go to a school to become a librarian, what um, what's that like? So I think it's changed a great deal since I went. Um, I'm actually going to go and be a guest lecturer at Towson in their ed tech graduate program um, and just talk about the, the, the role of a school librarian because we do, we have a lot of hats. It's not just about the books, it's about programming um, it's about enrichment, you know, in the middle school, I've really sort of found this niche where I've done a lot of virtual field trips for the boys. And that was born out of the pandemic. Mm. Like we could no longer get on a bus and go to DC and, you know, visit or go to Philly and go to the constitution center. So what were these museums doing in the pandemic to pivot and to serve different communities, you know, how are they serving the public? And so um, we've had a lot of success with that. And again, I think it's it's like just being creative, but also knowing what the students are studying in their classroom. So where are some different places? I mean, I'm sure that opens up a lot of different locations for you. Doesn't it? Yeah. So um, the eighth grade studies ancient Greek and Roman history. And yeah. uh, we always go to the Penn Museum up on the campus of the University of Pennsylvania. So. I had gone on that trip the first year I worked in the middle school. And while there, I was speaking with a teacher who taught Latin in the middle school at the time. And he's and I was asking him with my interest in museums, like where were there other good Greek and Roman collections? The Metropolitan Museum of Art has a good one. Um, but he said to me, you know, it's the Getty that really has a great collection out in um, out in Southern California with specific Palisades. So I happened to be out there and I, I went and I was like, this is unbelievable. This, you know, because J. Paul Getty actually like created a a Greek, you know, in a, in a Greek style home to house all of these things that he collected mm. while in Greece. Um, so we did a program with the Getty and it was it was phenomenal. And, and is it all on the students' computers that they're able to access the virtual tours? and? Okay. Yeah. yeah, so they, they zoom in, and what the docents did was they actually showed them about four different items from that period in history, from that location. And we looked at them with an intention I'd never really seen before, 
and we talked about them. Mm. And what the boys brought to the table was really astounding. That That's like, you know, that's it in a nutshell. But the Reginald F. Lewis Museum, like others, but we did do a virtual trip with them, they have some incredible technology that actually like just drops you right in the middle of the gallery. And it's like you're there. It's, it's, it's not you know, straight up VR, but you basically can like pan and walk right up to a portrait or a painting and talk about it. That's cool. That's next is that you're going to be the VR. You're going to have to be getting headsets <laughs> because these middle school guys, I mean, some of them have the VR headsets. Mm-hmm. I know my, um, my little sister, there's a little boy that lives in my family. Mm-hmm. My parent, I have a little sister in seventh grade and, uh, there's a little boy who like lives up the street from us and mm-hmm. and we're like, you know, what'd you get for Christmas? And he was like, I got a, uh, what is it called? Like a VR headset or, you know. Yeah, the metaverse. Meta- I'm on the metaverse and I'm like sweating, like, and I was like, oh my gosh, that's the future. So that's, those are the next field trips are gonna mm-hmm. be, that's wild to think about. Yeah, but I think it does It does sort of point to the fact like there may never be an opportunity where someone would go to this specific location, you know, like they may never really get a chance to go to the Getty, right. but they had this exposure yeah. to it, you know, That's which so is, cool. yeah. Yeah, and there are some great educators working in these museums. I mean, they all are, you know, top drawer, you know, educators. They all came out of Bank Street, you know, up at Columbia, which really... It's out a lot of museum educators. So where, um, when you were in college, where did the art history interest come from? Like, were you always kind of into that or? Um... I grew up in New York City um, and I just loved art. So I wound up going to school in Boston and just continued it. And it, those are two great museum cities. Um, were you an artist yourself or was it um was it just kind of the interest in the museums? And, yeah. yeah. Just an interest in, in that. And films too, right? You know, like I'm definitely a talk about visual learning. Like if I see a movie on something, that's definitely, that's, it makes an impact. So I grew up, yeah. My high school years were a lot of movie watching and museum going. That doesn't sound very fun or typical. It's fun for me. <laughs> I like museums. What's, what's your favorite museum in New York? Hmm. That's a hard question. Yeah. Um, I, I, do, I don't want to be fancy, you know, and say, like, I love the Frick, uh, <laughs> you know. Um, I love the Met. Met. Yeah. I mean, that's the, you know, the equivalent of the Louvre in the United States. And there's, you can't see any, you can't see everything there in one day. And it definitely has a heartbeat. You know, it's got some incredible stuff in it, too. I mean, they have a baseball card collection that's, you know, unbelievable. Do they really? Mm-hmm, they do. Hmm. Vintage baseball collection. I went to the, what's the other one up there? I've been to the Met before. And MoMA? I, I've been to the MoMA. Guggenheim? Gotta go to the Guggenheim. Whit, Whitney? The, is, the, the Whitney, I think, actually. The, yeah. The, the, they have a location. Did you go near the High Line? I think so. Mm-hmm. They they used to have a location on Madison Avenue, but I think I think that location no longer exists, or it's been taken over by a different group. It must have been cool to be around. I mean, to be surrounded by all those museums. No wonder you were kind of interested in that going to going to college. But we have incredible museums here too. Yeah. you know the BMA and the Walters. The Walters is a gem. You know, it's got a great great collection. And yeah. then you know Avam. 
um, American Visionary Arts Museum. So you went, so you grew up in New York. You went to Forest school Stills, in, in Boston. Home of the U.S. Open. Oh, really? Do you know? Yes, that's where they used to play the U.S. Open before they moved to Arthur Ashe Stadium in Flushing. Yeah. That's on my bucket list is the Is it? US Go to the Open? Open? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and then you went to school in Boston. Went to school in Boston. How'd you get to Baltimore? How'd you get to Gilman? Um, I, well, I went to graduate school in DC and then moved to Chicago when my husband went to graduate school out there, moved back to DC. And then, you know, we were, we started to raise a family. And so we decided to move here because we had a, um, we had a relative who lived in the area and she really coaxed us. She said, come, you know, move to Baltimore. It's great. And, uh, my husband works in DC. So he commuted on the Mark train. How did you find Gilman? Was that a recommendation to you or were you just kind of just looking around here? I was just talking about this. So I, I worked at a girl's school out in Owings Mills and one of my very good colleague friends there, Lisa Shapiro, um, started teaching at Gilman and she's the one who called me and said, Faith, there's a position here open for a librarian and I really want you to come and I really want you to. And, and, and I will say this, that these jobs don't come around very often because um, not unlike being an English or a language arts teacher, there are just more positions available with yeah. the librarians. It's they're very, very far and few between. Mm. So I came and I have never looked back. Uh, it's been it's been incredible. I'm sure you can say the same about Gilman. Oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> Has a heartbeat of its own. The boys, I always learn every day I go home and sit at the dinner table and talk about what I learned from one of my boys. I know. I never really thought that before coming into because I'm starting out teaching. Teachers always say that you learn so much from your students. And I was just like, really? Like, do you actually or is that just something is that just a, something you say? And now I totally believe that you, mm -hmm. you're just opening up the floor to people's opinions all day. Of course, you learn a lot. Um, that's one of my favorite parts of it. Mm -hmm. Um. Interesting. So you worked at an all girls school and then an all boys school. And I'm always curious about the the differences or what fascinated you by all boys or what you appreciate or like about being in an all boys school. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you could say the same about the all girls, but I do have the Roland Park and Bryn Mawr girls in my class too. And I always like talking about this, especially at the beginning when it's all like strange and awkward. It's their first time in a co-ed classroom. I have three daughters, so for me it was a you know I have a brother, uh, so I, at least I had that going for me. Um, I and we talked a little bit about talking. We talked a little bit about the, the the bias or the misunderstanding that girls talk and boys don't. Um, I think what I've learned being here is sort of I've, I've broken down like the different cultural, societal expectations that we have for boys. I think I look at a group of boys in the classroom and I ask the question like, well, what is it that we're asking them to do either overtly or giving them these subliminal signs that is really just baked into ideas that we have about masculinity? Um, and I, I, so I say, I look at my experience here through sort of like a feminine lens, asking the question like, well, why? Like, is this, you know, are we asking them to do something that's not necessarily natural to them? You know, what is their natural state of being? You know, hmm. what, are some, what are some examples of that that you see? Um, 
again, I could bring it back to librarianship with this idea that you know our boys in general are taking out nonfiction books, but there are some boys who love reading, you know, high fantasy, and that is all that they read, mm-hmm. and that they they are passionate about reading and they have a deep love and appreciation for it. And I think that's not necessarily what publishers would say. They, you know, publishers are printing books for girls who read them because that's really their market. But I would wager that there are a lot of boys that are ready, willing uh, readers. And maybe the deficits out there are the fact that publishers aren't publishing things for them. There were some librarians at Georgetown Day that did a study of the book covers that middle schoolers were choosing based on what maybe was Uh, being marketed or created and tailored for them. And if you looked at books that were potentially more appealing to boys, the covers were very dark. They were black and white. They were gray. Whereas the the ones that were marketed for or sent with the idea that it was a story girls would be interested in, very colorful puppies on the cover, you you know, Mm -hmm. and... And so I think that's a good example of like, well, why? A, a boy can't pick up a book that has a puppy on the cover? I would go for a colorful cover. I mean, who wants to read a gray, you know, a dark covered mm-hmm. book? But I don't know. I'll have to do That's my- surprising to me. It, it they, they had the data, so, you know, to prove it because yeah. they were able to say, like, you know, these we analyzed the collection. We analyzed who had taken the books out and who had um, who had read them. And then based on what the publisher's description was, who it was for. You definitely judge books. I mean, I do when I'm in a bookstore. I'm, if it's not, it doesn't have a good cover. I'm not looking at it unless yeah. it's been strongly recommended to me. Yes. The cover means a great deal. And you can even see in successful books, there's sort of like this mimicry going on about a cover that, you know, is successful. They kind of almost copy it and make a, another up and coming book similar. Do you like personally reading? I mean, these are great book recommendations. Oh, you, you have a, I have one more. I have one but more. That's okay. Um, personally, do you like reading nonfiction, fiction? Do you have a, like, a style genre that you enjoy most or are you kind of all over the place in your taste? I'd like to think that I was a polyvore, um, but we all have our habit trails and we have to be honest about it. And I read a lot of nonfiction. I, I do. I don't know why it's not what I would have said 20 years ago, but there's just so much good nonfiction out there that I can't turn a blind eye to it. You know, then that could be anything. You know, it could be like a book about leadership or, or business. Um, I'm, I'm all in. But... I definitely try to mix it up with fiction. And I I always try and read what my students are going to read because a librarian can't be their authentic self if they're selling a book to someone that they haven't read. Like, you have to read what your kids are reading. Or at least know a good (laughs) amount about it. Yeah, exactly. But I like to be able to say, because we know our work is relational, Right. Like I need to know like what the student likes to do outside of school to make a good book recommendation to him. And I want to do that by having really read the book, you know, so that I know it's ins and outs and I can maybe pull out a small, you know, thing that's really going to tease him into checking it out. 
That's, I mean, that's so important. And that's um, something that Gilman talks a lot about in the classroom is relational teaching. But I don't know if people necessarily think librarians are relational teachers too. They have to know what, what people like, you know? And that's one of the reasons I, I enjoy going into the library room at Gilman with the mm -hmm. librarians. They've got the Keurig in there. They, they know exactly what I like to read. Like mm -hmm. um, Alice and Rebecca and Diane, they're like, Jake, you might like this book. And they know mm -hmm. the synopsis or at least a little bit about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's great to be friends with the librarians, you know? <laughs> I, I would I would absolutely concur. I think, you know, it's, it's cool, too, to also know what's going on in their lives um, because then they feel safe to come and ask me, you know, or a book recommendation, or come to me and say, like, I want to do some research on this topic. We have an established relationship where they know they can ask me. And yeah. that, that's, I think, the foundation to me being able to help them in any way that I can. Yeah, that's so important. Because a lot of kids, I think, are uh, shy about approaching mm -hmm. teacher, librarian, anyone. When really, I feel like okay. you get a little bit older, and like, why would you feel shy about that? Like, mm -hmm. that's what they're there for is to help you. Especially middle school, we're very we're very accessible, we're very goofy and accessible. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I will soften my nonfiction blow by saying <laughs> that I love poetry, um, and as part of our supplementary reading program, so eighth, um, sixth, seventh, and eighth graders all have to read eight books in the academic year. Eight books outside of what they're reading for school. Oh wow! So they can read four books of their own choosing because I, I don't want to take away, I don't want to deflate like student choice. We mm -hmm. know that that's the driver in a lot of what we do. Um, but I do make them read. I don't, that's not the right way to say this. <laughs> I, I, we request that they read four different genres. So historical fiction, biography, nonfiction, and poetry. And it's poetry that's the big sticker for a lot of them. But there are also a lot of novels written in poetry formats, and we have a tremendous collection of that within our fiction collection. But I do suggest a lot of a lot of poetry to, yeah, to the I love students. That. Yeah, it, it's it's a natural for boys. Boys like to rhyme. Um, they like things that are neat and concise and finite. And a book of poetry goes down easily, and it really gets you thinking. And it usually begs you to reread. Yeah. For sure. Mm -hmm. oh, I love that. That's pretty rigorous uh, requirements you in middle so? school. Parents love it. Yeah. Prospective parents love it too. Um, and and we've had a lot of success with it. We've, we've sort of changed it so it's a very um, technological uh, process for them to show us what they've read. They fill out a form. We collect the data on it. We give them a merit for things that they've read. Like, it's great. And then we, we also see what they're reading and we know... Maybe it's a book we don't have in the collection. So that's a great way for us to say like, oh, this is being read. Let's go ahead and, and buy it. I think that's a great idea for the library club too is a poetry booklet. It's short, it's accessible, it's mm -hmm. thought provoking, conversation starting. Mm -hmm. I think that we're going to try to do that in the upper school maybe. Cool. But so I like that. I'll have to think about a book written in, I, I know there are a lot of YA books that are written in poetry format too. But you know, even if you picked up like the crossover or something that um i brought for valentine's day pablo neruda's love poems i'm not going to read any of them but i think again for our guys who are i don't have a big foreign language collection and these poems stand in their original language with the translated version next to it so i would think 
you know, for a lot of our students, they're very good at Spanish. They're they're excellent, you know, with their French. And for them to see poetry side by side is, I think, a great initial step into literature in its native tongue. Wow, that's a great rec. Yeah, little. Awesome. And you have that in the middle school. I'm sure, it's in the upper school too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Well, Faith, thank you for the four book, five book recommendations. Um, it was a pleasure to have you on today. Very interesting conversation. I think we covered some solid ground here. Um, is there anyone you would say in the middle school who you'd like to hear on a podcast? Is there anyone who comes to mind that you would recommend that we we have on our, we're looking for some more guests on here. I have, I have a lot of people <laughs> that I would recommend. Um, Donnell Thompson is an incredible human being, full stop. Um, but when it comes to conversation, um, I have, again, I learn a lot from him, no matter how long we have with one another. Um, I would also say uh, Mike Wallace. Coach Wally is just an incredible um, human being, and he's going to be part of our Tiny Desk concert uh, tomorrow. He's playing the harmonica with one of our sixth grade students. So oh, that's he's, awesome. He's um poly uh talented nice but yeah okay i think i uh, those are two starters but you could have you could have a lot of fun with some other middle school or teachers yeah great well we haven't had them on yet so great so those are great so thank you very well, much thanks for coming so much on. for having me of course